This is Colonia Cast, episode 16. Uh, thanks again for tuning in. We've been, this is sort of our fourth month of doing this and really overwhelmed with the support we've been getting. Uh, everyone that's been tuning into the show. Uh, definitely a lot of people reaching out and giving some great sort of feedback and questions and, and seems like everyone's been enjoying it so far. So make sure you can find us at the turtleroom.org slash ColoniaCast. We just recently set up the ColoniaCast student fund uh, through the Turtle Room uh, where we're going to be hopefully raising, we're going to be raising money for student-led research in turtle and tortoise biology uh, and conservation that will be picked by us in uh, conjunction with the Turtle Room at the end of the year. Uh, so you can find us on there. Um, today, we are really excited for this discussion we're going to have. We've got Dr. Stephen Platt uh, from the Wildlife Conservation Society. He's their associate conservation biologist for Southeast Asia. Uh, Dr. Platt has done an incredible amount of work uh, over, over uh, many years working in, in Asia, but also pretty much all around the world, uh, focusing on uh, crocodilians and, and colonians. Uh, he's also sort of the lead of some of the most successful, uh, I think, arguably most successful reintroduction programs for, for an animal uh, with, with the, the star tortoises and such. And we'll, we'll speak about that. But uh, we're, we're really excited to have you on, Dr. Platt. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on your show. All right. So we, we started out with it's a it's a pretty cliche question that we always start with. But uh, what got you in what first got you interested in turtles slash what made you decide uh, to pursue the research slash conservation route? Yeah, that, that's a that's, that's a good question. I actually I didn't start out as a, as a turtle biologist. I've always been interested in turtles ever since I was a little kid growing up in Louisiana. Um, but I started out as, as a crocodilian biologist. I, I did my master's work on American alligators in Southeast Louisiana. And then I did my PhD dissertation on, uh, on a, a Morlets crocodile in Belize. Went back and worked later on American crocodile in Belize. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was you know, I kind of did a segue uh, right after I finished my dissertation um, into turtles which I, you know, I don't, I'm interested in a lot of things. Um, and, and, uh, it's, it's just, you know, that's how things fell out and, and you know, I ended up in Southeast Asia where there are very few turtle biologists and, uh, lots of species of turtles. And so, uh, you know, the more you start to work with something, the more interested you, more you realize how little is known and how little time we have to save these animals. And so I, I really, uh, you know, that's kind of what got me, uh, you know, focused on, on this field. I still really don't consider myself a turtle person. You know, I'm more of a, a generalist than a, you know, than a, a specific, uh, you know, specifically confined to turtles. But turtles and crocodiles are, are pretty much what I do these days. Right. So you said Southeast Asia, maybe like specifically, uh, you've done a lot of work in, in Myanmar, but some of the other spots, like, have you been sort of all over there, I imagine? Yeah, I've done uh, I've done work in uh, the first trip I took to, uh, to to Southeast Asia. I guess it was it was you know, Southeast Asia. Yeah, it was is it to Indonesia? I went to Sulawesi and uh, stumbled on the the Sulawesi forest turtle, which had not never been seen in the wild. Was known for market specimens. I didn't even know what I had in my hand at the time. I was so inexperienced. I had a copy of uh, Ernst and Barr Boar Turtles of the World, but 
that species hadn't been was only described in the late 90s and I couldn't find it in the book took a bunch of photographs it was only later on that I realized what I'd found and then um, you know I've worked in, in done crocodile work in Vietnam Cambodia work with turtles and crocodiles there Thailand mostly uh, crocodiles haven't done a lot of work there um, uh, Laos where I am now is mostly crocodile work and then you know but Myanmar is, is my uh, that's kind of my second country, uh, you know, if I, if, I mean, I used to live there for a number of years, uh, spent a large portion of my time there. So that's, you know, that's where I've done the bulk of my, uh, the bulk of my work. That's, that's a great sort of segue, I guess, into what we'll sort of be focusing on, I guess, today, but we'll go all over the board. But so Myanmar is a really interesting place. And I, for Pretty much my whole life, I've been interested in turtle. I think I speak for Ken and Jack too. It's been one of those places when when you've got sort of, I guess, a global interest in turtles that that immediately kind of comes up as a hotspot. It, it's, I mean, it's right smack dab in the middle of the the Indo Burma hotspot for turtles, which I think has the most it, like twenty endemic species and over fifty species just in this section of Southeast Asia. Uh, and so you're working in this really interesting area. Uh, that that we've all known of for a long time, but so I, maybe you can provide a little background on why Myanmar is so interesting from the perspective of a turtle conservation biologist, and and what what sort of is there that that other places don't necessarily have, or why should we be kind of keeping track of it, right? Well, it's uh, there. Are, I think twenty four species of turtles that are there in Myanmar, and eight of them are either endemic species. One of them is considered a subspecies. It's probably a, a full species. So eight of the 24 um, species that are found in Myanmar are endemic. And almost none, you know, the what we know about them, especially what we knew about them when I first got started in this game, is almost next to nothing. Our standard reference work was Malcolm Smith's um, the, the Turtles of British India and Burma which was published in 1931. Um, and I, I don't think Smith was particularly interested in turtles. He seemed to be more interested in snakes and, and lizards just based on his, on, you know, the papers and the books that he produced. And so, you know, that, that book uh, is, is there's a lot of um, descriptions of the animals, very little natural history information. And if the, in, and adding to the to the uh, urgency or the or, or our interest in the area is that a lot of these species that are in Burma, um, especially these endemics, of the eight of them, I think seven are considered either threatened or or or, or endangered. Um, so there's a you know there's a time factor. You know not only are there's lots of endemism there, but they're also you know they're going pretty fast, and so there's an urgency to our work in. in in Myanmar to save these turtles before they go extinct. Right. Yeah. That that seems to be the case. And and bordering China and I get four or five other countries, right? That's got to be sort of a challenging thing uh, when it comes to to sort of porous borders and 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 pouring over anyone that's sort of boarding bordering China when it comes to turtles is going to get exploited, right? You've had that the whale syndrome sort of China's depleted its its own stocks and now it's going to reach out into other places. But that sort of brings up an interesting question, right? The conservation uh, sort of value of, of Myanmar when it comes to that and the fact that it could be under threat from from trade in other places that's kind of forcing it there. Um, 
maybe you've sort of worked on the turtle trade specifically. Maybe you can sort of provide some some background too. You mentioned at least seven species endangered or critically endangered. Uh, maybe like what are the factors, the reasons that that's occurring, uh, and maybe if we know uh, where is it coming from the most out of those factors, right? Yeah, it's 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 different for each species. Um, you know, some of it's habitat loss, uh, like the roof turtle, um, which I assume we'll talk about later on. It's mostly was just you know collection of the eggs for people to to eat. Just the you know long term chronic collection, maybe over several hundred years, um, slowly just drove them uh, to extinction. Star tortoise, of course, are incredibly valuable in the trade. Um, and so they're, you know, they're the high-end international pet trade is what threatens them. So you really have to look at it as a species by species. Um, you know, their threats, particularly each species, but it all really boils down to, you know, the uh, habitat loss and, and exploitation. Whether that exploitation is for commercial purposes or subsistence reasons, it's still turtles just can't sustain any type of exploitation. So that, those seem to be the primary drivers of of the extinction uh, of these turtles. When it comes to sort of national regulation on this, how is Myanmar when it comes to like wildlife protection, I guess, is, are these things illegal or harvest or? Yeah. I mean, the laws are on the books. The problem is enforcing the laws. Um, and until recently there was almost no enforcement. I mean, when I first started, I never saw it. They don't, you know, they don't let foreigners near the most border areas. But there were just, you know, truckloads of, of turtles going across the border uh, into China that were being traded, and and you know, it was all illegal. But nobody was bothering to enforce it. And you know, probably, I mean, certainly things changed over 20 years, and it's, the trade's been driven underground. Uh, but there's still, you know, it's worth like star tortoises. People will take the risk. Uh, because the payoff, the reward is so high. Um, and, and, you know, big-headed turtles are another one. And, and another thing about Myanmar, there are border areas that aren't really under government control, um, where a lot of things move across the border, human trafficking, narcotics, uh, other types of wildlife. And so that's always been a problem, you know, been a problem with Myanmar. Right. So the, the, the wildlife trade is sort of intermixed with other yeah, of, I don't even like, I don't like to call it trade. The trade implies, you know, it's it's a legal exchange of right. goods for money. It's, it's yeah. I call it, you know, whenever we write about it, we refer to it as trafficking because it's, you know, it's it's illegal. Um, and, you know, these aren't, you know, these aren't, uh, I think, a common misconception of, with a lot of, you know, poaching. The people have this perception of poachers is just some poor guy out to feed his family, you know, or make a few dollars to buy some food. But that's often not the case. I mean, these are highly organized criminal gangs that are really, you know, making, you know, big money off of these, uh, off of this, uh, this activity. And so it's, uh, you know, these are, these are, uh, they're not, not, it's a very depressing subject. I, and I've worked on the trade, but it's, it's not something I like to do um, just because you, you know, it, it's extremely important, but it's just, uh, you know, it's just really depressing to, to, to see all these animals being killed for no other reason than human greed. I think it's an interesting point you bring up too, that 
it's not in a lot of cases it's not really just people going out there's sort of a difference between subsistence harvest and and when it comes to the actual trade that's going internationally right you've got gangs of people that are sort of acting as middlemen and and maybe taking advantage of people that are kind of more remote and maybe don't have access to as much but yeah when it comes to the bulk of 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 turtles moving it's it's due to organized criminal groups that are doing this trafficking i think that's the um the book by ed edward and don mole on the conservation of river turtles and 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 tortoise and tortoises was pretty enlightening when it comes to like really thinking about the dynamics of trade that was something that was kind of interesting reading through that so any listeners out there looking for a good kind of overview of it i'd suggest that because they also bring up too in there i think we a lot of times maybe subsistence harvest is something that a lot of times is looked at as okay it's people living in harmony with nature but in a lot of cases it, it could actually be pretty detrimental right is that something have you quantified how bad subsistence like with all of this it's hard right to get a metric because you know you don't even know really how much it is occurring how much trade is going on and and such because it's all sort of illegal and it's not that you'd have to be everywhere all at once to, to get an idea for the quantities right yeah yeah we we um you know getting information on on trafficking and turtles is really difficult just because it's so much of it's you know a lot of it's an underground activity um so we look at seizures um and i think they're you know seriously you know they're probably missing uh you know the bulk of the of the animals that are going through um so the seizures are really just the, t uh, the tip of the iceberg i think even like in the united states but narcotic seizures they estimate only about a quarter of what's coming into the into the united states actually gets interdicted i think it's probably with wildlife it's probably especially in a place like myanmar it's probably a lot uh you know a lot less than a quarter that's uh that it's actually intercepted i noticed with even in uh like currently a lot of mexican turtles are in extremely high demand over in uh in china and every once in a while, there'll be a confiscation of, of like 15,000 turtles or more. But just based on how they're packaged and shipped and so so many of those, they just slip right through. Nobody, they never get caught. And that that's just really worrisome when, when you see the kind of numbers just in a single one. It's like, well, if, if this is a small percentage of what's going through, how how bad, how dire is the situation for these animals in the wild? Like that's, that's what it makes me think of. Yeah, and, and you know what? One thing about subsistence harvesting too, they rarely get the last animal. But when an animal is valuable, like a star tortoise, you know, there people will, can, you know, it's worthwhile to spend time and and hunt that last animal out. And so, yeah, you know, the with these turtles, um, you know, if they're in high demand, I think they'll just clean them out of the clean them out of the wild. Yeah, that's a good point. The subsistence harvest too, I think sort of a lot of times has sort of an intrinsic conservation value to it, to the people, right? They realize in a lot of cases that it's a expendable resource and, and limited and that there's, I'm just thinking about the Malaysian Terrapins, right? That the, there was kind of a three and, and the, the Perak River that were, I think the moles did their work. There was kind of three stages of nesting and, and the, the way that they controlled the nesting there was the third kind of, I guess the large mass nesting of terrapins was protected, but the first two, they could actually consume the eggs and go out. And it was 
seemed to be strictly controlled sort of by the, the sultanate, I guess, of Malaysia at that time, uh, prior to World War II, uh, before that all got destroyed. But it, I think there is sort of a lot of times this intrinsic uh, people realize they need to protect it. Whereas, yeah, like you said, that kind of backs up the idea that, that they're not going to really take the last one. But when there's a value to it, not in nature, removing it doesn't have any really impact on what, what traders care about. Yeah, I mean, a subsistence harvest can be detrimental just because turtle populations can't sustain, you know, very, very low harvest levels. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 commercialization of wildlife, especially turtles, is just uh, that's, that's going to spell the doom for, you know, for almost any species. Right. So, yeah, that's interesting. And has COVID, has there been any sort of measurable impacts on how COVID has impacted sort of the quantities of turtles moving in, in, in trade or can we even really know? No, I, I've, you know, it's impacted our ability to do work, um, but uh, do field work. But as far as I know, you know, it, it hasn't impacted, uh, um, you know, the, the smuggling of, of turtles or tortoises out of, uh, out of Southeast Asia. I mean, border, there were a lot of border closures that probably made things hard to move. But if there was an impact, it was very it was very temporary. Right. OK, so, yeah, that's interesting. Um, maybe we can briefly sort of change into a realm that a lot of freshwater and tortoise people don't necessarily venture into. But the sea turtle uh, sort of area, I think that you've done a little work with that. But when it comes to Myanmar sea turtles, what is kind of the situation there it's it's pretty dire i mean they you know compared to there's actually a really good publication um that was written by a guy a british colonial fisheries officer maxwell his first name escapes me at the moment but he published his report in 1911 and uh there were just you know compare he gave some pretty solid numbers on the turtles that were nesting at, uh, along the coast at that time and you know, compare that to what we have now, and it's just a fraction uh, of the animals, of the a fraction of the population survives. Um, and even areas that are monitored, we're still seeing a decline in, in uh, you know, in, in sea turtles, in the number of nests uh, there. So, yeah, it's not a good situation. Uh, we've done some nest protection in some limited areas, uh, but still a lot of the uh, you know, you've got to protect the breeding females, and a lot of those animals are getting killed by shrimp trawls and long lines, you know, things like that. So, yeah, there's still sea turtles there, but how much longer they're going to last, you know, it's, it's hard to say. And they they nest predominantly on little, like, sandbanks, right, in the Irrawaddy, I, I'm probably butchering pronunciation, but the Irrawaddy Delta, they, the, these little islands of sand, right? You know, there's one island off the uh, in the Diamond Island um, where there's quite a bit of green turtle nesting, and that's not really at the mouth of the river. But the one, the, the, yeah, there are some nests nesting areas at the mouth of the Irrawaddy River, um, but uh, they're not. Uh, the number of turtles there is, you know, is continues to continues to decline. I mean, I I went there and first went there in 1999. I can't quote the numbers offhand. Um, and I went back in nineteen in in twenty seventeen, and the number of nests I saw the second time, seventeen, eighteen years later, was just you know was were very few. Whereas in in uh, 
you know, in, in 1999, they were, you know, pretty much nest all, all over the place. And those, those were mostly Ridley's, uh, you know, the uh, olive Ridley's in that that were nesting there. Interesting. That's interesting historically that we've got information from Maxwell. I know he'd reported some of the river terrapins as well, but we can, we'll get into that. Um, yeah, so... I guess we could sort of like a lot of people might know the work that that WCS and the Turtle Survive Alliance do with uh, the Burmese roof turtles, star tortoises, and such, and we'll certainly talk about that. But maybe we could just kind of go into some of the species that are not as well uh, covered, I, I guess, by the media and, and such. Uh, maybe kind of less charismatic, and and that might be the reason. And obviously, maybe in less of a precarious situation than some of the other species. Um, but so kind of, I mean, maybe just walk us through what, what, how diverse the, when it comes to the genera that you have in, in Myanmar, how diverse the turtles are and, uh, kind of what we know. Uh, I think a lot of the work, right. Has been just on documenting ranges for species. Cause as you said, that your reference for this was from the thirties, right? So there's very little to go off of. So just establishing kind of baselines, um, what kind of species do we have in total in, in Myanmar and, and what do we know about them and in terms of their range and such? Well, we've got uh, 24 species. Um, we, we've got a pretty good handle on their ranges, um, but we don't know much about them. I mean, even the ones we've been working with, there's still big gaps in our, in our knowledge uh, as far as what we know. Um, I mean, basically anything we learn is new information because there was just, you know, they were just, uh, Smith did his work, then World War II came around, the British left, military government took over in, in Burma, there was civil unrest after World War II, and then from 1962 on, you know, research by foreigners and, and also by Myanmar academics was discouraged, so and turtles have never been a high priority really for anyone. So yeah, pretty much, you know, we don't know, uh, we, we know about where they're found, but th that's about it. Um, and there, you know, we're still range extensions that we, uh, you know, that we come across every now and then. But as far as the 24 species, I personally, I think that, that t 23 of them are, are, are threatened, uh, you know, to, to various degrees of severity. The only one that's, that seems to do relatively well is the little um, uh, flap shell, um, Lysimis scutata, which is, um, you can even find them in ditches in, in Yangon. Uh, they just seem to, I think they mature very quickly and they lay, you know, a good number of eggs for such a small turtle. Um, and they have fairly good survival. And probably also, I should say, the Indian flap shell as well, it, which is found in extreme western Myanmar. They don't seem to, they have yellow spots on the shell. And a lot of people think that they, they, they can contract skin diseases from eating them. So, um, you know, they, they leave them alone. Um, they seem to be, they have a, a limited distribution in Myanmar, but they seem to be doing pretty good. Uh, the, the other flap shell is found pretty much throughout central Myanmar, southern Myanmar, and they seem to be, you know, like I say, they seem to be doing fairly well. Everybody else is probably in, in you know, is probably threatened to some extent. Interesting. The soft shells are real interesting in that, yeah. in that region in general, right? You've got such a diversity of 
pretty much form, morphology, size, everything. But maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, you've got the Nilsonia and the Keitra there. I know Jax really loves Keitra. Yeah. So they could I'm curious about uh, like what what is even really known about the Keitra, like Van Dyke Eye, just in the, within their natural range in general, and do they seem to get as large as some of the other members of their genus, and uh, what kind of conservation status are they and if we even really fully know that yeah we don't know what their status is they are exploited when we did our review of turtle trafficking at Myanmar we didn't get many many soft shells but I think those are probably a lot of those are not being exported because they're difficult to get out of the country alive so people just eat them uh you know there so we never see them really in the you know in the traffic statistics um, but uh, they, they can, I've never seen a really large one except on a, um, the biggest ones I've ever seen were in a, a aquaculture facility in Thailand, uh, but the, they can get quite large. Uh, we did a little, we, we fortuitously stumbled on some nests and we've incubated some eggs and then released the hatchlings um, uh, on the Chinwin River. Um, and they, there are some up, you know, you just don't have a, I just don't feel confident in saying that there's a secure population there. Um, they are in the Chinwin, in the upper Chinwin, and we've tried to get an assurance colony established, but we didn't have very good luck. Um, and we just need, you know, we're, we're kind of overstretched as it is with what we're doing, and, and we just weren't able to branch off into, you know, into soft shells. But the Nilsonia and the, and the uh, Chitra Van Dyke would it would behoove us to establish assurance colonies. We just, you know, haven't had the resources to, to do so. They're an interesting turtle though, because at least from a reproductive standpoint, because they, um, they all the other river turtles uh, kind of follow the same pattern where they nest in the dry season when the, when the water levels are low and the sandbanks are exposed. And that's what we always assume that, that the uh, Chitra would do, but the nests we found were at the height of the wet season and they seem like, they, you know, at that time, those sandbanks are underwater, or only the very tops are exposed, and they were nesting right at the crest of the sandbanks. And uh, so, the, you know, they're taking a risk, um, but the eggs hatch out in the wet season, towards the end of the wet season. Um, and I'm sure, you know, nests are lost uh, due to flooding on a, regular, on a regular basis. But that was really kind of a neat, you know, we have very small sample size, so they, they may nest, you know, over a much longer period, but that was kind of a neat exception to the general rule that we uh, that we found in that species. And What's something, oh, go ahead. I've had, I've always had this this question: is how do you even go about capturing what like Kicha or I mean the Nelsoni I could see, but I mean the, how would you catch them in the wild compared to like I mean we use hoop net traps all over the the United States here for a lot of species of turtles. Does that even work for like, uh, would that even work on those soft shells or do you have to use like some sort of net or like, uh, because, yeah. Well, the fishermen catch them on hooks. Um, if, you know, baited hooks, if we were, we've never actually gone out and tried to, you know, tried to catch any, uh, any soft shells. Um, but, uh, if I was going to do it, I'd use like, uh, gill nets and just, you know, check them, be right there. I think they would get entangled. The thing about trapping turtles in, in Asia is you want to be careful. I, I feel hook nets would work just fine, but, you know, people don't use them. 
And so if I show up with a bunch of hook nets and start catching turtles and people go, whoa, that's a pretty good way to catch turtles. I got to oh, go yeah. out and get some hook nets, you know? And so, uh, you know, they would, you have to be careful about, uh, about uh, doing that, but also, you know, turtles are usually at really low densities. And so, you know, trapping, um, you know, it would work uh, probably, but uh, you know, you're, it would take a lot of trap effort to, uh, to get, to actually catch, you know, enough turtles to, to do a study on, say. So a lot of the stuff we get is just kind of opportunistic. You know, somebody will have a turtle and we hear about it. You know, we go examine it or, or we'll stumble on one when we're out in the field. You know, the turtle nest we found, uh, um, our boatman found, he just happened to be, you know, passing down the river and, and saw the tracks going up onto the, onto the top of a sandbank. So that's, you know, now the Batagir, we, we the the Batagir trivitata, we know where they nest, so we watch those uh, we watch those sandbanks. But yeah, it's you know doing turtle work in, in Myanmar is very different than you know than doing doing similar work in the in the United States. I guess one of the most uh, predominant species in Myanmar would be the invasive red-eared sliders, do those seem to like be leading to the decline of the native species or do they seem to be occupying like different niches? No, they, you know, they're, they're, they're very common. In fact, our biggest seizure of turtles were, were like over almost 3,000 red-eared slider hatchlings. Um, we had to take those out because it, you know, dwarfs all the other, it really screws up the statistics. But no, they're, um, they're very common in, in pagoda ponds. Um, and, but it, even natural ponds uh, around Yangon, for instance, you'll see them. But I've never managed to find them in the wild outside of the. I mean, those are natural ponds, and I've never seen any reproducing um, uh, red-eared sliders. And so, you know, red-eared sliders are not a tropical species. They're, you know, right. temperate. You know, United States. And I'm not really convinced that they're established. Uh, you know, people, they, they keep dumping all these hatchlings around. And also, like in Yangon, they're, they're just literally hundreds of thousands of house crows. And so the, um, uh, the staff at the Yangon Zoo, they have a big pond there. You know, it's a, a natural lake. And they told me about seeing trachomies come out to nest. And they'll they'll nest, and a house crow immediately lands behind them and just picks the eggs off as they're as they're laid. And these are social birds, and so you know, one house crow's eating its fill of, of eggs, another one comes and takes its place. Um, so, uh, and and I think in a lot of these ponds, they're naturally these snakeheads. Uh, Chana is the genus. They're real. They're native to Southeast Asia, and they probably eat the hatchling. So. I'm not aware of any place that trachomies has actually become established uh, in the wild, and 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 if they did, um, whether they were whether or not they were threatened, the, the native species is just it's an open question right now. We just don't know. But I don't. Uh, I mean, I don't recommend anybody releasing trachomies outside of their natural range. But I've not seen anything in Southeast Asia to indicate that they're you know that they're threatening. Uh, that they or that they would threaten, you know, turtles. Uh, there's not really any offhand. I can't think of any turtle that really is in the same niche as, as uh, or what I would define as a niche of, of trachomies scripta, you know, that, in Southeast Asia. So it's not a major. I don't consider it a major threat to to turtle populations in, in Southeast Asia. Right.
That's a, it's an interesting, so I've spent a few years working a project where we actually, so we did a lot of empirical work, actual based on observations in, in Southern California, looking at uh, how Western pond turtles and red sliders bask and looking at kind of the distribution of how, wh where they're using aerial basking sites. And it seems like there is sort of a difference in how they use them, but I think that it, it it's hard to say, yeah, exactly what kind of effects that they would have. And I think a lot of the reasons that, that you know, there's not a lot of factually or empirically based data to say that there is any effect, right? Looking at it from the niche niche perspective is the right way to do it. When I hear people say, oh, they're more aggressive, uh, they they reproduce more, they're, they're bigger. I, I mean, those are sort of facts about sliders, but that doesn't prove anything that they have an impact on turtles that might have a, a, a slightly different niche or very different niche. They're not really going to be overlapping. Um, I'm working on a Hopefully, by, by the time TSA rolls around, I'll have a lot of it done, but working on some, because we couldn't really prove an interaction effect between sliders and pond turtles just based on the, the observational data. So now I'm doing some work with these, you can sort of parameterize these uh, differential equations and looking at theoretical over time, how are the sliders and pond turtles, the niches kind of expanding and contracting with respect to the others. So that should be something kind of interesting, but it's like the first, there's not really any other work that's been done in that that sector. So it's interesting to hear in Southeast Asia that, that I guess it sort of makes sense, right? There's not going to be a huge sort of urge to import them when you already have so many turtles. The, the, the trade is going to be based on that more. Yeah, people, they import, uh, um, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of them. And what they do, at least in Myanmar, if you go to the pagodas, uh, Buddhists believe that you can gain merit if you take an animal, a fish or a bird, you know, a turtle and release it. And so they usually have these big ponds on, on the grounds of pagoda and they'll release, they'll buy hatchlings, hatchling uh, sliders and release them into the, into the ponds themselves. And so by doing that, you gain merit. They also will sell, you know, bird, cages of birds and you buy a bird and release it uh, so you gain merit. Um, you know, it, it kind of begs the question is, you know, if you didn't buy those things, people wouldn't be putting them in captivity in the first place. So, um, but yeah, that's a lot of the trade and trachemies is, is for these merit releases. And you'll see them, you know, people do keep them as pets, um, but, and there is a big import, but I've never found a, you know, an established reproducing wild population. Interesting. And some of the other species, the pagodas are interesting because they've got sort of, when you've got people going out into the wilderness and collecting turtles and then releasing them in the ponds, I mean, I think of like the the black softshells, uh, Nilsonia nigricans further west, uh, it seems like that species was, I think, first rediscovered in pagodas and then subsequently found in the wild. But examples like that, right, you'll get species that or we don't even think that they're still around sort of in situ, but then you find them in these ponds and, and can kind of work with that. Um, when, but I guess when it comes to just other species, what sort of species are you finding in the pagoda ponds in Myanmar? And like, I think of like eyed turtles, right? Is that, that's something that the, the Morania. Yeah, that's, you know, trachemies and Morania, I think are the two common species. You sometimes you'll see soft shells, some of the early Batagir trivitata that were, went into the captive breeding programs were actually found in, in pagoda ponds. 
and there's a Batagir Basca, the only surviving Batagir Basca that we know about in Myanmar is in a pagoda pond uh, in Yangon. We've not, not been able to get it um, you know, out of the, uh, some pagodas will work with you. They, they're governed by a board of trustees and um, some uh, board of trustees, you know, in Mandalay, luckily we were able to get the Batagir Trivitata. Um, they tend to work with us. Uh, but the one in Yangon, they they won't. Uh, they were you know pretty much adamant they won't give up that turtle. We we were going to move it to another um, uh, pagoda where we had actually. There's a big pond there, an outdoor grass pond. The monk uh, that runs the place, he's you know very progressive and interested in conservation. And we were trying to bring in a male. Uh, as far as we can tell, it's a female. And we were trying to bring in a male from from Bangladesh or India and start breeding, but we, we haven't had any luck getting that turtle. And we know that turtle's been there probably since at least the, uh, at least the 1960s. Um, and actually, I'll take that back. There's an, I believe there's one more Batagir basket and another Pagoda Pond. I've never been there in, in Bond State in eastern Burma. Um, so if we can, you know, I think that, that one is also a female. I know there were two there. One of them died. Um, but I think there's still one there. So we've either got one, definitely one, I think two Batagir Basca that survive in, in, in Pagoda Ponds in Myanmar. What's the status of, of, of uh, the Northern River Terrapins in Myanmar? You said that there's only, do we know if there are any in the wild or like when was the last time they were documented? Now, my wife found some in, in early 2000. I want to say it was 2004. It was down in southern Myanmar in a, in a war zone. Um, and actually, you know, these conflict areas where it was uh, too dangerous for people to go in there and go fishing. And um, we went back, you know, she GPSed the, uh, the, the beach where they were nesting. Um, and we went back in 2012 and the beach was gone. Uh, there had been a ceasefire declared in the interim, um, and and once the ceasefire was declared, people started fishing in those areas, and they sold the sand to a company, which is Singapore buys a lot of sand, and the only thing we could figure is that the Singaporeans, you know, sucked up all that sand and destroyed the beach. We found the location, but there was no beach there anymore, um, and and so uh, that was the that was the last. And those may have not actually been Basca. They were far south. We don't really know where Batagir Basca, where the dividing line was between Batagir Basca and Batagir Afinis. So those could have very well been Batagir Afinis. We just don't know. Um, at the time that she found them, um, you know, they were they were all considered Batagir Basca. They hadn't been hadn't been split. Uh, I don't think she saw. She found the eggs. I don't think she saw any any living turtles. Um, but that was the last group of wild Batagir that we're, that we're aware of. Every now and then we hear some tantalizing story in a coastal area. But, you know, when we try, attempt to follow up, uh, we just, you know, not able to find anything. Right. The paper by, I think, Prashjag that split them, they didn't have any sequences from that area because you couldn't. <laughs> So, yeah, that's an interesting yeah. point that you don't even know what species is there. I, I didn't even consider that. huh? And that's pretty interesting. How, how about some of the um, some of the other species, like some of the cyclamies, uh, also the some of the box turtles, right? You've got kind of an interesting box turtle situation there uh, with an endemic variety. 
Yeah, I think that variety has been elevated to a full species. Um, they certainly look different. We, we haven't done much of anything, you know, with those. Um, they're definitely, uh, some of them are in the trade. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, we, we, other than some records we've gotten from villagers, we really haven't done anything with, with any, of those, any of those species. The cyclamies aren't in, in, uh, in demand, really. People eat them locally. But they are, you know, um, they're, I don't want to say they're easy to find, but you can find them. Uh, where we have a, uh, uh, up on the upper Chinwin River, I frequently uh, have, have found them or village kids have brought them to me. Um, and they found them right around the village in a wetland there. So uh, people will eat them if they get them, but they're, you know, they don't go out of their way to hunt them. So uh, they're probably fairly safe in remote areas right now. Right. That's interesting. So I guess we can sort of maybe transition to some of the species that you've, I guess, focused on more thoroughly with WCS and the, the, the species that are obviously critically endangered and we need to establish sort of a baseline. Um, I guess you've done a lot of really interesting adventures. I imagine a lot of stuff that's been kind of scary at times, but at other times really rewarding, right? Um, maybe you can just what was sort of the most interesting adventure you've been on in terms of looking for turtles and, and kind of why was that the case? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I love going into the field. Uh, you know, I, I kind of, uh, you know, uh, measure the, the uh, I don't know really how to put this, but, the, you know, when you're, um, uh, when you get a lot of field notes, you know you've had an interesting day and so you know normally you go into the field and i've got you know two or three notebook pages and i write really small just filled up with observations um so yeah every time you go into the field and you get field notes you're having a good day you're learning something uh, but probably the most interesting trip i took there were actually two of them uh into the naga hills in, in western myanmar and uh those areas uh we had you know the first trip we took, we kind of probed around the around the periphery, and we had to get we had to get permission from an ethnic army uh, to go into the Naga Hills, uh, um, and and you know they were they just wanted to make sure. I've, I've never felt threatened by any you know insurgent group in Myanmar, and they, there have been these ethnic armed organizations all over the country for years. Um, and and uh, their their beef is not with you know not with foreigners. Um, but we went into the area in the Chin Hills and the Naga Hills that were, uh, were controlled by the Naga. And uh, we didn't really, well, we got some interesting turtle records out of there simply because nobody had ever, ever been in there looking or hadn't looked for years. But it was really fascinating because most of those people had never seen a foreigner. I was the first foreigner that they ever saw. And so, you know, you'd walk, each of these villages were about a day of days walk apart. And so we, you know, pretty much just walk from village to village and, and talking to people and asking if they had any turtle shells around and, you know, what other kind of wildlife was in the area. But, uh, you know, most of those people had never seen a foreigner. So you have to get used to being stared at because everybody would just gather around you and, and stare at you. Um, but I remember one time in this one village, I kind of got used to being the, you know, the only foreigner that ever, had ever been there. Um, and I, I just remember one time I asked him, I said, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like the first foreigner who's ever been here, right? And they looked at me and said, oh, no, no, 
you're not the first foreigner. Foreigners have been here before. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, I wonder who else has been here. And uh, so I asked him, I said, well, you know, what other foreigner has been here? And they said, well, that would have been Father Diekman. Um, in, in nine, I said, what year did he come through here? And they, well, I think that was 1932. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it had been years. And, and they had his name carved on a rock. And he was, as best as I can determine, he was an Anglican missionary that had walked from uh, from India in because Nagaland overlaps a border, you know the the international boundary goes right through it, and he had walked from India. Him and an Indian uh, Anglican uh, um, you know missionary he had both walked into Nagaland and visited that village. In, I think 1932 or 1933. So yeah, officially I wasn't the first foreigner that they had ever that they had ever seen. But they, you know that had the first time we went into into uh, Western Myanmar, into the uh, Rakhine, into the Arakan Yomas, looking for uh, um, uh, turtle, or the Arakan forest turtle, Heosemis depressa. That was 1999. And this old man came into our village and um, we got to talking to him. And he, he, he had walked for, you know, a couple of days just because he had heard that there was a foreigner staying in this village and he wanted to look at me. And uh, so I asked him, I said, when was the last time you had ever seen a foreigner? And he said, the last foreigner I saw were Japanese soldiers in the Second World War that made me, you know, conscripted us all and made us build this, uh, made us build this trail that you came in on. And so he was pretty old. I don't know how old the guy was. Um, he was probably in his late 80s at the time, but he, he said he felt really bad. And, you know, his, he didn't know what year he had been born in. Uh, but he was felt bad and had just described all these ailments that he had. I mean, the guy was ancient, you know, he's got to have some, you know, he's lucky to be alive in the first place. So he wanted me to give him medicine. And so I, I didn't have any medicine to give him. I don't think there's any medicine you could have given him for these things. So I had all these multivitamins with me and I just gave him the whole bottle. And I said, you know, take one, take these. This is really powerful stuff. I said, if you take more than one a day, you're going to die. So only take one of them a day and uh, you'll be you'll be OK. And so I didn't think anything of it. You know, the guy left. And so we made a big circuit through there. And a couple of weeks later, we came back to that village. Man, that guy showed up and uh, he was brought us all these chickens and bamboo tubes full of sticky rice. And he was telling us how he felt, you know, he felt like he was 25 years old again uh, because of that medicine I had given him. So, I mean, he could have had a vitamin deficiency, but I really think it was just the, you know, the placebo effect. I had given him some right. power. That's how, how powerful was, the placebo effect can be. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was expecting to get better, but we had a big feast and he was so happy. And I just, it made me feel really good that I, you know, I helped this old guy out and we talked to him for you know, for a long time. And he told us how it used to be and living in that. Cause I was, that still is a pretty remote area, you know, of Burma. So it was kind of a fascinating uh, talk. And I felt like I'd made the guy, you know, made his life a little bit, a uh, little bit better. That's interesting. Hey, I was going to say, we're going to show up there at some point. We're just going to see your name carved on a rock somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always wonder if in that village, I'm not, you know, my name's not carved underneath Father Diekman. So <laughs> you <laughs> see awesome. that all the time. I mean, you know, even in, you know, you don't get it in Yangon or Mandalay because people are, are a bit more sophisticated and they've seen foreigners. But I've been out, you know, working in, in some of these star tortoise sites and, and just have people, 
uh, stop and want to take their picture with me. And I, I remember one time in, in Shwisita, I was you know, it's kind of some rough areas. I found human remains not too far from the uh, not too far from the sanctuary headquarters. A guy looked like somebody stuck an axe in his face. It was just a skull and some long bones there on the trail. But uh, you know the 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 uh, sanctuary uh, uh, warden told me not to go wander off by myself. He's you know it's not safe. And so I was kind of like, yeah, I wasn't too far from, I was walking down the road near the headquarters one evening right before dark and these two motorcycles with about five guys on them, you know, riding two motorcycles passed me up. They looked at me and they went down the road and turned around. Both of them turned around and started coming back real slow. I was, you know, was, I was starting to get worried at that point. Um, I didn't know what to expect. And I'm kind of looking, you know, I, I'm used to run a lot. So I figured maybe I could outrun these guys if I had to. And they all, they started getting off their motorcycles. All they wanted was to have a picture taken with a foreigner. And so I stood there while these guys took turns with their cell phone, you know, each getting in a photograph with the foreigner. They had no idea. We, I, You know, I don't speak much Burmese, but they just wanted to have their picture taken with me. And you know, that's happened. That was kind of early on, but that's happened to me, you know, countless times in remote areas where people just want, you know, want their picture taken with the foreigner because I'm some kind of a, you know, you're, you're kind of a novel, uh, you know, a novel experience for them. That's very interesting. I guess that's one of those things that you wouldn't necessarily realize when you're doing field work that that would be something that you're going to experience, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I, I never expected it. And, you know, people, you go into a village and everybody stares at you. I remember years ago, the, the uh, I don't mean to get off on all these stories because you're completely unrelated turtles, but I just remember I was in this area where we do a lot of work. Now, this was in 1999 when we first went to go look for star tortoises um, in Shwisita Wildlife Sanctuary. Um, and, and I was sitting in this chair and, and we were talking to the village headman. And back in those days, they used to get, you know, they would have a, a generator and they would run a VCR and they would watch Western movies, action movies, you know. And I just remember like these women were all sitting around me talking, you know, it was obvious they were talking about me. And so I asked, uh, you know, this woman I was with, who, you know, is now my wife. I asked her, I said, you know, what are these, uh, what are these people talking about? What are these ladies talking about? They're obviously talking about me. And she listened for a while and she said, huh. She said, they all agree that you look exactly like Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> so, yeah, they had been watching Van Damme movies. And I guess we all just look alike to them, you know. And so, yeah, first partner they had ever seen, he obviously looks like Jean-Claude Van Damme. So I didn't know if I should take that as a compliment or not. That's funny. But to them, it's like finding a lifer. Seeing a foreigner, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, you know, that village at that time that was that was probably the only foreigner. I was, I know, I was the only foreigner that they had ever they had ever seen. Hey, at that time, Myanmar was closed off, so there were very few foreigners in outside of the you know the major cities. Even in the major cities, you'd have you know if you saw a foreigner, I mean, I would go or they would come up to me and ask me what I was doing there, just because it was so uh, so unusual. That's. Cool. So you mentioned the the Chindwin River. That's an area I think that's pretty kind of focal to a lot of the the work that you're doing, specifically with the uh, Burmese roof turtles. Maybe so. I've followed that work kind of throughout the years through the TSA magazine. Although I haven't seen one since 2019. That could just be because I haven't 
gotten the most recent updates or whatever, but I, I don't know what that was. But I'm curious in the past few years what that what that program has been like. Maybe you could give us sort of a rundown of uh, kind of how that's worked. I mean, you guys have done some really incredible work there bolstering the assurance colonies, but maybe you can just talk to that and how the past few years have been in terms of production of, of, of offspring. Well, they're, they're doing pretty good in captivity. Um, in fact, it was uh, really uh, um, coincidental tonight. I got a, a text message from our guy, from one of our people in Myanmar, and 37 out of 37 eggs uh, hatched on the Chinwin. Those were wild collected eggs. Wow. And so if you've been following, so that was really good news because I don't think any hatched out last year. Uh, we're down to a very small number of, uh, of animals. Uh, we think, you know, less than, you know, I think this year two females nested on the on the Chinwin. I can't go, I haven't been to the Chinwin. I left because of COVID in 2020 and I haven't been, uh, haven't been able to get back in since then. Um, I can't do any field work, but luckily we have, you know, Burmese staff that are able to to still run the project. Um, the 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 work we do in the wild, and those are important turtles genetically, um, but those are the surviving, you know, wild population of, of turtles. Um, we every year we monitor the beaches, the sandbanks where they nest, and we collect the eggs and bring them back to our base camp and incubate them there. But uh, it's touch and go, you know, it's, uh, you know, we, we get them. Uh, one year we lost, we know we lost at least one female. Um, so we're down to two females that are nesting an unknown number of males. I think in 2014, we ended up with zero, 2014 and 15, we had no eggs hatch out. They were just, uh, they were uh, all non-viable. We think we had one or two males and we lost them. So the following year, we released males and we started getting viable eggs again. So it's, you know, it's hit or miss, but the, it, we're getting a lot of them in captivity. I think last year we got right around 300 of them hatched out in captivity. And what was really exciting about last year, because we've got assurance colonies. We've got one at the Mandalay Zoo, another one at Lakananda Wildlife Sanctuary, which is near Bagan. Um, we've got another one at Tamanthi, and we've got one at the at the Yangon Zoo. Uh, both of the the last two at Tamanthi and the Yangon Zoo are pretty new. We haven't really gotten any, any fertile eggs um, uh, fertile eggs out of the out of either of them. We haven't gotten any eggs out of either of them. Um, but uh, though for years they've been breeding at the Mandalay Zoo, um, and we were getting around 150 to 175 hatchlings, and then last year. They started nesting at the at Lakananda Wildlife Sanctuary, and what's exciting about that is is that those turtles, the ones in Mandalay Zoo, are wild caught, or we got them out of pagoda ponds. But the ones at the Lakananda were actually animals that we hatched out in captivity and reared in captivity, and we had no idea, you know, if those animals would even breed or when they would start breeding. And we were thinking maybe, based on some work that was done with Batagir Finnis, maybe it would be 20 to 25 years, um, you know, before they started breeding. So, I mean, they, you know, we started these work when I was 50, or roughly 50 years old. I was afraid, you know, I'm gonna have to wait, what, 75 years old to see these turtles breed. Well, they started breeding at a lot younger age. And we think, we're not sure which females nested and we have various, uh, aged uh, females, uh, several age groups of females in the in that pond, but 
but the uh, the oldest females in that pond were only, I think, 14 or 15 years old. And so we're, they started producing eggs at a, um, at a much younger age than we thought they would. And they've also, uh, um, uh, we got, I think last year we got 30, I think we got 42 and six of them uh, were, the, the, you know, we found the hatchlings in the eggs dead, but we still got, you know, a good 36 hatchlings. This year we've had about 30 hatchlings, very, and it's very early in the season, season, so we're expecting to get more. So they nested a second time. And uh, we also, uh, you know, we've also, from the Mandalay Zoo, we've gotten around uh, 20 of them. So they're just getting started there now. So, you know, shaping up to be another good year. Uh, of captive breeding. So Batagur uh, trivitata is, is secure, you know, in captivity. Uh, I think we, we've got them and we've gotten the breeding and we're breeding good numbers of them. But, you know, in the wild, it's still, a, a you know, it's still like I always used to say, you know, what quote the Duke of Wellington after the Battle of Waterloo, it's a damn close run thing. Um, because it's, you know, it's, it's still hit or miss with them in the wild. And it's always easier to preserve, you know, an animal in the wild than it is to reintroduce it. So we've done some reintroductions. Um, the turtles haven't started to breed yet. Uh, we're not sure, you know, we, we can only track them for about two years before the, the transmitters go out. Um, the last day that I was on the Chinwin, we had a, had a fisherman bring us. I had, last day I was there, a fisherman brought a, a turtle from 2015 that he had captured. And, uh, and he brought it to us and, you know, uh, said he had caught this turtle. And we, we were able to, it had microchip, transmitter had fallen off. We microchipped it. It was one, uh, we read the microchip. It was one we had released in 2015. So they're still in the river. Uh, but, you know, when those animals are going to start to breed or if they'll start to breed, we just... You know, it could be several, it could be a number of years from now. But uh, yeah, it's it's much easier to keep them in the wild in the first place than it is to, re, you know, have them extirpated and then reintroduce them. Right. I think the ultimate goal, it, it's incredible that the Head Start, the insurance colony, the Head Starts have started to breed already in the wild. That's that's really exciting. I think the ultimate goal of any conservation project that's looking at repatriation. Um, so I'm curious how far they move because I know that there like, there's some documentation. You actually sort of worked on like rediscovering the species, uh, I think. And that I guess maybe what was that process like? And then how far are they moving? Because there's not a lot of documentation of them anywhere else in the Irrawaddy. Yeah, we don't know how far they move. Uh, the ones we've, you know, we put transmitters on a track, they don't go very far. They seem to stay right around within about a, a 10 kilometer stretch of river. But, uh, you know, we don't know if they were natural, you know, if they were naturally would migrate up and down the river or, you know, move down the river and come back to nest on certain sandbanks. We, we just don't, all of that's, it's just a big blank right now. So yeah, I was involved in the in the rediscovery myself, and uh, actually, I, I, I've rediscovered them in the uh, Dokthawadi River, and that population unfortunately has since gone extinct. A few years after we found them there, they built a hydropower dam, uh, which flooded the only known nesting site, and then there was a big uh, influx of fishermen into that area. But uh, what happened was is that uh, was that um, you know. 
I went there, when was it? In December, I went to Mandalay and this uh, river's not far from Mandalay. And so after I had to give a presentation at the university there and afterwards we went along the river and we talked to a few people and they kept saying, uh, talking about these, these large, uh, these turtles that laid eggs that were the size of duck eggs. And I was like, there's only one thing that's going to be, and it's got to be, you know, Batagir Trivitata. And so we came back that dry season. Um, and that was a neat place, too, because we also found star tortoises that were just like dirt common there, Burmese star tortoises, um, because they had these religious beliefs that, that they and they just didn't bother to protect the, you know, they, the beliefs protected the, the tortoises. Uh, but we went up the river and we went to this village and, and this guy, uh, he was a, I mean, this guy was a con man. We couldn't get a straight answer out of him, but he gave us a shell of a Batagir trivitata that had recently been collected. I mean, the 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 flesh from the inside of the shell was still uh, was still um, hadn't even dried completely. But we didn't know where. He wouldn't tell us. You know, he kept every time we talked to him, he changed the story. The police were looking for him for something, uh, but we, anyway, that confirmed that they were uh, that they still survived. Um, and then a few months later, I went back to the States. That's when I decided to go into academics. I tried to go up the Chimlin River, but we couldn't get permission. And then Gerald Coochling was able to get permission, and he went up the Chimlin River to where the specimens that were collected that are in the Natural History Museum in New York were collected. Um, and he found that they were still uh, that they were still surviving in that area. But that was in what two? I, I think I, I found it in two thousand. I don't even know when that was. Two thousand one, and Gerald found him in two thousand two. I think the following year, two thousand three. Uh, but since then, over the years, their range has just shrunk. You know, they were they were a southern sandbank and an upstream sandbank, and now they're down to one sandbank where we know they where they still uh, they still nest, and so you know they haven't. They're not making a recovery in the river, or it's nothing we can demonstrate. Um, although we're, you know, we've put a number of turtles into the river, and they probably are still there. Uh, but uh, you know, it's just recovering them in the river is is going to take us a long time, especially given the political situation in Myanmar now, where we just can't get out and, and do the field work that we need to that we need to do. What kind of I think that with like conservation programs, a lot of times you want to deal, bring in genomics or genetics work when you're doing Head Start specifically with species that are kind of low numbers in the wild. Have you sort of characterized maybe like an estimate of like effective population size in the wild or do we have an idea of that? Yeah, effective population size based on some work that uh, a, a graduate student from Singapore did is, is about 10 um, I think it's actually much smaller than that because the animals are so related um, that you, it's very difficult to distinguish them, genetically distinguish them apart. So there's these lineages that are full sib lineages. You know, you have brothers and sisters that are mating with each other. And so far, we are lucky. We haven't seen any real anything that we can say is inbreeding depression yet. Um, and so, you know, sometimes if you, if you, uh, if the collapse is is sudden, but then the recovery is sudden, you can avoid those, uh, you know, those effects of those deleterious effects of inbreeding depression. And so, you know, but you know, there's not much we can do about it, just because we have so few turtles. 
uh, in the first place. And so hopefully we can avoid all that. But, you know, we have to work with the hand that we were with the hand that we were dealt. Yeah, that makes sense. That Yeah, it's an interesting program and pretty incredible that you've not only played a part in sort of rediscovering them, but also in, in bringing it back to the point where there are now, I mean, yeah, in captivity at this point, is it over a thousand? Yeah, we I just worked up the numbers a couple of nights ago. I think it was I think it was one thousand one hundred and seventy-two uh left in, uh, that we have in captivity. But you know, just within the, the numbers are starting to you know, they're they're hatching out right now. And so so far I think we've had about fifty of them hatch out. So you can add fifty to that uh to that number as well. So uh yeah, they're secure in captivity. I wish we had some breeding. We have a breeding group in Singapore, but they're not, they've never reproduced in captivity. And I think it's because they're on the equator. This is not an equatorial species. Um, they're, you know, the upper Chinman River is temperate. I mean, you go there in the wintertime, the water temperature is too cold to take a bath, at least for me. And, uh, you know, you're walking around with a sweatshirt on in the daytime and they just don't seem to do the, you know, the, the basically there's no, um, difference in photo period in Singapore. And I think that messes them up. They, they're active, reproductively active. Males are in breeding coloration all year round. But anyway, that colony in Singapore is not reproducing. Everything we've got now, right now is in Myanmar. I really wish we had other colonies, you know, in the U.S. Uh, um, or, or some other, uh, you know, uh, country where we could actually uh, just have, you know, have some insurance uh, that they're, you know, nothing's going to happen to those, you know, colonies. You don't want to have all of your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Right. That's that's pretty interesting. It, the U.S., is that something that's feasible or is that kind of just a long term? No, I, I don't I don't think right at, at the moment we could get them out. But I think they would do great, you know, at the Turtle Survival Center in South Carolina. You have to bring them in for part of the winter. But I think the rest of the year would be, you know, very similar to, you know, to their uh, – you know, to their their um, uh, native habitat. I, th I think the Chinman, I want to say, is about 16, 17 degrees north latitude. I, I'd have to double check that. But it's, you know, it's nowhere near, you know, it's nothing like being on the equator. Yes, actually, one of our... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'm a little delay. You, you could probably... It, it would definitely work over here in, in certain parts of the country because there's actually a change in the temperature uh, throughout the year that it's, it's not static. If you're going to be right on the equator, it's just warm the whole year. So I, I could, I could see them breeding in the turtle survival center or some other facility here. Yeah. I think it's, it's temperature and also day length as well. Uh, you know, because it, uh, you're on the, on the equator, you don't have any change in either of those. It basically is constant, you know, Singapore's constant all year round. So yeah, you know, if we, I'd love to get a group at, at, you know, Turtle Survival Center or someplace in Florida. I think they would do, I think they would breed quite, uh, you know, quite easily. Yeah, that, 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 that makes it tricky, though. I mean, that you can't really control. It's really difficult to artificially replicate any of those conditions. So you have to work with, you have to work with geography and there you, you can't, it, I mean, may, I couldn't see it working in like a greenhouse type situation unless you were to, artificially control the amount of light that was coming in and work with the temperature at the same time. And that might not even be worth it resource wise, if you were to just take advantage of a, an area that naturally has the proper conditions. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, by far, you know, I think you could put them, you know, put them in outdoor ponds in, in South Carolina and just bring them in in the cold part of the winter, put them back out in the, you know, in the early spring, they do fine. But, you know, the problem is getting them out of Myanmar, uh, you know, even in the best of, of times, you know, that that would be challenging. But right now it's just, it's, it's a non-starter. Right, right. The, the same thing with, when I spent some time in Madagascar, they told me a lot about how it would be preferable to get a lot of the tortoises and the confiscation. Some of them set them up in the U.S., but it's very challenging in Madagascar. And I imagine that's got to be the, the major obstacle there is just regulation at the national level. But that, yeah, that's that's that would be something interesting to see. One of our, our the fourth co-host is actually driving to the Turtle Survival Center today. That's why he couldn't make it because he just got an internship spot for a few months. So um, kind of an interesting side note, I guess. Uh, so this, the Star Tortoises is another project um, that you've worked on that, I, I mean, just in the statistics I've seen, it seems like that might be maybe unarguably the most successful uh, kind of ground up repatriation and, and captive assurance colony uh, conservation program. Uh, but Maybe you could give us an update on on the past few years with that, and and sort of the what, what's what, the most recent things that have been happening in with that. Yeah, we're kind of in a holding pattern right now, just because of the political situation there. Uh, but we've reentered. You know, we started with 175 uh, animals, and you know, I should say uh, back up, um, kind of talk about the the roof turtle. The star tortoise were in captivity. You know, they were in the pet trade, and so you know they were there went extinct into in the wild. Um, we had animals that we had confiscated from traffickers, or the forest department did, and those were the founders. About I'm not sure the best we can figure between 175 and 200 tortoises. Um, but even if we wouldn't have gotten those, we still could have gotten those that species out of the pet trade. And, you know, we would have been working with smaller numbers and it would have been more difficult and, and taken longer. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't hopeless. But the the, the roof turtle, um, if we didn't, had not have intervened when we did, uh, those that species, I have no doubt in my mind that they would be extinct by now, simply because there weren't, you know, there were a handful of animals uh, in captivity. Well, I know that one got into the United States um, is in the hands of a private collector, but um, but uh, they you know they were uh, they were they were not in the pet trade, so we had no source of animals to start assurance colonies, uh, um, and we really got lucky there. But the star tortoise, we started that the first few years. We really you know we didn't have good facility, things weren't going uh, didn't go too good. We we would get a, a, you know I, I don't remember numbers offhand, but we'd get you know twenty or thirty hatchlings. Um, and then we, when my wife and I, I don't want to, you know, she won't, um, she'll, she won't take credit for this, but she went back and kind of galvanized everybody. She went back in 2011. We both started, I was, I was, she went back about six months before I did, because I was, had to finish up the semester. Um, she went back and kind of got things organized. Um, and if you look at the numbers, they, they, they kind of piddle along for about five or six years. Not much happens. 2011, they go into a, what turned out to be an exponential growth curve 
Um, we're getting, you know, every year we get, you know, one to 3,000 hatchling star tortoises uh, are born. We're really to the point now where, uh, you know, we need to stop breeding star tortoises because we're breeding them faster than we can get them back into the wild. Um, it's, it's more like, uh, you know, it's not even like, it's almost like you're working with a commercial poultry farm, you know, when you start dealing with these numbers and you're trying to figure out, you know, how many to dose with antibiotics and how much food to give them. It's just, you know, it's, the numbers are just, they're staggering. I mean, it's a good situation to be in, uh, you know, as, the, as opposed to the other extreme where you're struggling to get any offspring at all. But uh, we're breeding them, you know, just, you know, just gang busters, basically. Um, and so we, you know, and it, it doesn't take, we can get them to, to reproductive size in, in five to six years. And so those are the size of the animals that we're translocating and getting them out into the wild. But the only thing is, is that they're still, they're so valuable uh, that people, I mean, it, you know, they, we talk about organized criminal gangs. We've had break-ins at our captive breeding facilities, uh, you know, break-ins at our holding pens. Uh, I had to deal with corrupt uh, government officials. Um, it's just, you know, the, and these animals are, they're going, we've tracked some of them that have been stolen. They end up in, we've recovered them from China, from Thailand, uh, Vietnam, and, and some of them have turned up in Canada. So, I mean, this is a global network of, of traffickers that are moving these tortoises. Uh, you know, people are willing to pay big money for them. I, yeah, I, I always wonder if, if you know, uh, and it's debatable, and, and some people, um, I mean, I, I go to a TSA meeting, and we will start, you know, this question comes up all the time, and it really turns into a heated debate, but it seems to me, um, if you, you know, if we could sell a lot of these tortoises and flood the market with these hatchling tortoises and drive down the price uh, low enough, it may not be worthwhile for people to go into the wild, take the risk to steal them, um, but, you know, it, it, it just seems like basic supply and demand, but I'm told that the you know economic principles don't apply to illegal wildlife trafficking. I don't know whether that's you know, I'm not uh, you know I, I can't really judge that. I'm not in a, you know, competent enough to I don't know enough about economics to know if that's true or not. But uh, yeah, as long as the price is you know of star tortoises is high you know, people will be willing to break into those uh, assurance colonies. And that's where they're most vulnerable when they're in those pens because they're concentrated. You can grab a lot of them in a short amount of time and run. So, I mean, our, our assurance colonies that we where we raise these star tortoises, they look like, you know, maximum security prisons in the U.S. They're, you know, high fences topped with concertina wire. We have people that live inside them. Uh, you know, in these huts, they, 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 you know, they're not there all the time. They, you know, they rotate out, but we have staff that are inside the pens, you know, uh, 24 hours a day just to prevent theft. It's like, you know, you know, you hear rhino conservation where they have guards, armed guards that follow these rhino around just because they're so, you know, it's, it's such a risk for, uh, for poaching. That's, you know, that's what we have to do with the star tortoises to keep people from stealing them. Yeah, I think one interesting thing about um, where these turtles are headed to, I think if I understand correctly, uh, most most of these turtles were uh, demanded from China, and then until some point, the other international markets were actually accounting for more of those uh, demand. Is that what do you think are the factors behind that change? Yeah, the, the star tortoises are popular. I think all over the all over the world. 
I think just the way these trafficking networks go, they go to China first and then they go elsewhere. But Thailand, you know, the first big death case we had, all the tortoises went into Thailand. We actually recovered them um, from, um, we uh, found a, um, uh, a guy in Thailand was posting them on Facebook. In fact, it was interesting because they disappeared. You know, it took us a while to figure out that they were how, you know, how they were stolen from the pen. I contacted somebody in uh, right before lunch. I contacted a, um, somebody in Bangkok and I said, you know, hey, these star tortoises are missing. We think they might have been moved into uh, into Thailand. Uh, have you heard about any any star tortoises? I came back from lunch and I had that guy's uh, screenshot of this guy's Facebook page. Um, where he was had some we could identify the tortoises because they were marked. And so uh, we went to Thailand. Uh, we ran our own investigation. Um, we shouldn't have. We don't know anything about law enforcement. I mean, I, everything I know about law enforcement, I got by watching Law and Order series on TV, you know. And uh, so, you know, we were this was an amateurish effort. Um, but we figured out what, you know, who the, the traders were, the, the people who we figured out who stole them. Uh, pretty much everybody that was involved on the Myanmar side was was arrested and went to jail uh, for about a year, um, except for one guy who was he was uh, a ranger um, who was overseeing the reintroduction and he was letting the people in to steal the tortoises. We never got him. Uh, he was the you know he was slippery, but the people in that area believe those tortoises uh, if you harm them they're protected by these spirits, these earth spirits, they call them gnats. And if you, if you harm the tortoise, something bad will happen to you. And don't you know that guy ended up dying a short time later. And so it was basically, yeah, everybody said, well, we, you know, we told you that was going to happen. You know, it was, it was basically divine payback. But then we went to Thailand and the Thai National Park Police had a file on this guy. They had been investigating him. And so uh, we looked at a bunch of surveillance photographs and they needed to get a warrant. Um, I don't know anything about Thai law, but apparently it's easier to get a warrant there than it is in the U.S. And they matched up the trees in his Facebook post with some of the surveillance photographs that they had. And they asked me if I'd be willing to come back on, you know, within a couple of days. And because, and, you know, somebody was going to have to file a, file a complaint against this guy. And so I said, yeah, and I didn't think anything was going to happen. And sure enough, they called me right before Christmas to come fly to northeastern Thailand. They had arrested this guy and, and, and gotten these tortoises. Now, he had filed off the tattoos on the, on the carapace. And when I got to, I took a microchip reader with me. And when I got to, uh, to northeastern Thailand, it took me a, a day to get there. Um, you know, they produce these tortoises and I, you know, zapped them with the microchip reader, you know, Bing, bing, bing. They were all ones we had we had uh, released, but we'd also nobody had noticed that the scutes had been cut. And I had a master sheet with me, and the ones you know, and there was a perfect match, not only with the microchips but with the scutes it had been clipped. Okay, so I had to file a complaint. Don't, those tortoises didn't belong to me; they belonged to the Myanmar government. And so the Myanmar government deputized me to act on their behalf, which was almost unheard of for, for them. They'd never done that for a foreigner before. So I went on Christmas Eve and swore out a complaint against this guy who was sitting in the next you know room, and it was all in Thai. The Thais basically told me what to say, translated it. And this guy ended up in jail 
Um, but uh, so, you know, we didn't get, but we didn't, he had sold them. He had gotten them from another guy in Bangkok, an animal dealer. And the police then raided his place and he didn't have any more star tortoises, but he had an illegal orangutan. So he went to jail. So we did take down a couple of players there, but uh, most of the tortoises we didn't recover. And they, those probably went into China or elsewhere in Thailand or, or back into the U.S. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, there's a, it's a global network. But, you know, any of those animals, they're all microchipped. And so if they turn up, you know, we, we kind of have a standing deal with the Fish and Wildlife Service. If any of them turn up here in the United States, they microchip, uh, you know, uh, put a microchip reader on them. We can still make a case against those against those people. Right. That's interesting. I think so. Yeah, that, that I guess the marking serves sort of two purposes, right? Kind of reinforcing the the those those tribal beliefs there, but also once they're in the market, you can even kind of track them down. That's I guess good. It's controversial, but I think that when it comes to conservation, it's definitely it's definitely worth it. Um, we're sort yeah, of well, getting. If I can just say one thing about that, that we had hoped that defacing would would lower the value of the animals, but it doesn't seem to be. Um, I don't know how many people in the wild have found one and then left it alone because of the, you know, the religious icons that we put on there. But they all, to, to get them off, you have to sand the, the carapace. And so when you do that, that's obvious. We can look at a photograph. So we found some in China. They had sanded them all, all those markings off. But the, the sandings were, and we just said, well, you know, microchip them, you know, and let and they did and sent us the numbers. And we said, yeah, those are, you know, those are some of ours. So it uh, it does help trace the animals. Yes, that's a good. That's definitely a good thing, and and teaches you a lot more about the tortoises, also about the trade routes, I imagine, and everything. Um, so we're starting to kind of come up on time. We try to obviously we could talk forever, but <laughs> uh, we try to keep it sort of to to a reasonable management for people that that are listening. Um, but I've got a, just one quick question too about the soft release. And how effective that has been uh, with the star tortoises? Yeah, it seems to be effective. Um, they they tend to stay uh, right around. We we still haven't looked at all that data yet. We've got mount, reams and reams of data, uh, but it's they tend to stay within a kilometer or two of where we release them. Some of them don't. You know, the, those pins enclose natural habitat, and the way we release them, we just bust holes. It's bamboo, so we'll remove some of the panels and just let them find their way out. And some of them never leave. They just they set up housekeeping, you know, in the pen, and they or they'll leave and they'll come back and you know just go back and forth. So it seems to be uh, it seems to dampen that that post release uh, dispersal. Uh, we don't you know. In, in one wildlife sanctuary we work, it's really important because the it's not a, a large sanctuary. And if they just set off across country, they're going to be out into somebody's bean field before long. And so in the other area, it's not that important because it's a huge uh, protected area. So we don't mind there if they wander uh, too much. But but the soft release does seem to be the, the not only our experience, but other people's experience as well. It does seem to does seem to work. And, you know, it makes intuitive sense. I mean, you know, if somebody dropped you off in a city you'd never been to and, you know, told you to survive, you'd, you'd wander around, you know, you know, not know where you were, be completely disoriented. But, you know, you set you up to a hotel and you just kind of, you know, the hotel is your base and you work out from that and you build a mental map of the city. And I think that's the same thing that a, 
you know, the soft release pins do for our, do for our tortoises. Right. That that's an interesting thing. Um, so I guess sort of our last concluding kind of question uh, would be, I guess we'll go, we do a little turtle trivia round at the end here that just a quick little volley for fun, just to bring up stuff that's sort of, as Carl Franklin put it on one of the la the the previous podcasts to demonstrate all the useless turtle knowledge we all cumulatively have, um, but just sort of the last question would be uh, for someone that's interested in getting into turtle and tortoise biology or conservation or just herpetology in general. What would your as a career? What would your like one piece of advice be? Uh, don't expect to get rich. That's for sure. But no, I. I uh... I don't know. I, I you know I can't. I kind of came to this. Uh, um, uh, you know, I I I I've made all the wrong moves. I, I never really planned my career out. It just worked this way. But you know, just if you're interested in turtles, you know, just follow your heart's desire. It, it's uh, you're you're not going to make a lot of money, but you'll have a good time, and that's and it's extremely interesting. So just get as much field experience. You know, work for people, volunteer if you have to. Um, you know, get out there and, and, you know, get to know people and, and get the experience in the, in the field doing stuff. Um, so, uh, you, know, <clears throat> you know, that's probably the best bit of advice I can, I can give somebody. Get, you know, read a lot. Uh, you know, even if you're not a professional, if you're interested in turtles and it's not your profession, still, you know, keep up with the, do as, keep up with as much literature as you can, because, you know, we're always learning new stuff and, and, you know, things are changing all the time. So, you know, definitely, you know, I used to tell my, my students when I was in, when I was a um, professorizing to, you know, try to read a scientific paper every day, even if it's peripherally related to what you're doing, you know, just, you know, read it because you never know what you're going to learn. You know, Pasteur always said chance favors the prepared mind. So, you know, prepare the mind, uh, you know, read, read, read and, and get out and get practical experience. I think that's a great way to to sort of to, to end off the discussion um that's some really great advice and and i think it's we're all i guess pre-college yeah we're all pre-college here J uh, jason the other person is he's a sophomore at uh, kent state but we're all headed off to college so definitely we'll take that to heart personally and hopefully listeners can can do that as well um so we do we do a little um sort of turtle trivia here uh, with with a few like rounds, we can do this two different ways. If you want to just ask us three or four questions, we could do that. Uh, but we could also do a volley where we kind of ask a few questions and whatever you want to do. Well, don't ask me any questions because I'm. It's getting close to my bedtime and I'm fading. But uh, yeah, I don't really have any I don't, any question. What's a good turtle trivia question? Uh, I don't know. What's the largest uh, North American species of freshwater turtle? I'll let Jack do this one. This is probably his favorite question. <laughs> uh, the alligator snapping turtles, like uh, Macrochelys, those are the largest. Oh, oh yeah. I got to be specific here. Um, if we're to get really specific, it would be the, the Western species with uh, the largest individuals ever recorded are over 200 pounds, and they're recently caught out of Texas. So, Well, yeah, I, you know, I – just to show my age here, I'd forgotten that they had even been broken into two species. I learned them as one. So, yeah, uh, that sounds right to me. I, I think there was one that was 
supposedly caught in the upper Mississippi or Ohio River that was that was larger than 200 pounds, but I don't know if that was ever verified or not. Yeah, for a while it was uh, anecdotal evidence. I didn't even, I personally had found it hard to believe that they would reach more than 200 pounds in the wild because it was, almost, it was almost, it's rare you'd ever see one over 130 in, in any area. But uh, I mean, the, there was one caught last summer in Texas that was 211 pounds. So, I mean, they're out there. Yeah, those are such cool turtles. Okay, another tr turtle trivia question. I don't know. We'll talk about uh, – uh, we'll go Myanmar turtles. What's the uh, – uh, this may be too easy since I just got finished talking about it, but what's the uh, – uh, an endemic species of, uh, of terrestrial turtle um, – a species of terrestrial turtle that's endemic to western Myanmar and adjacent areas of Bangladesh? Well, the the depressa hyacinthes. The yeah, uh, the, yeah, that was too easy. We talked. Well, about I, that. I I can get the 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 one that we were. I I guess maybe maybe not much is on this, but the me, Burmese black turtle, the Melanochelys terjuga. The the that one was one that's endemic, but kind of an interesting one that gets overlooked a lot, I guess. But yeah, yeah I think I think that's actually a full species myself. Okay. They're real common in India. And so, you know, we, but I've only seen a few specimens in Myanmar. I think that's, I think actually that's a full species, if, especially if you look at the distribution, because you got a mountain range separating India from Myanmar. So, yeah, I think that's a, that, that that's, yeah, they're not in Bangladesh though, but yeah, I think they're, uh, that, that would have been a, you know, uh, that's a good answer. Right, right. I, yeah, that, I, one thing I realized too, kind of looking through stuff is a lot of the species that occur in Myanmar, especially the ones on the, the top 25, the IUCN list all have Burmese in the name. So a lot of endemic species and, and such pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, maybe if you got one more, a few more questions. Uh, like, I, I, I should have prepared these in advance. I, I can't think of anything offhand. So. All right. Well, that's that's good to go. That's my bedtime. No, yeah, no. I was going to say it's got to be getting pretty late. So that, but that was a, a, a certainly very interesting and, and really informative. I definitely, I think I speak for everyone. Uh, I definitely learned a lot, and, and to hear your perspective and some of the adventures and such, uh, really interesting stuff. You can't necessarily get out of the the the, the magazine overview of the project, right? You, you get so you add the human aspect to conservation. Uh, which is really just an interesting thing. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on, uh, Dr. Platt. It's been a great to talk to you and, and hear more about the experiences. Uh, hopefully we'll cross paths at the Turtle Survival Alliance meeting if you, you end up there. Yeah, no, thanks for inviting me on and, and I wish all of y'all well with your careers. There's, there's not enough turtle biologists in the world. So uh, yeah, we can always use some more, so. You know, definitely, definitely it's a good career path to pursue, especially if you're interested in turtles. Right. Yes. Okay. Well, it's been great. Uh, just a reminder Thank to everyone. For... Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm yes. starting to. <laughs> I'll just say for coming on. I, le I, le I learned a lot of during this episode. Those And those stories were very, uh, they're very intriguing, entertaining. It makes me want to get on a plane and then fly out there. <laughs> but that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Sure, sure. Never a dull day in this business. 
it certainly seems like that. But just a reminder to our, our listeners, you can find us at theturtleroom.org slash ColoniaCast. Also find us on whatever social media we're on, I think Instagram and other things maybe. But uh, it's been it's been great. Uh, really happy to have you on today and uh, I think just a really interesting discussion. So thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll see you on the next episode.